Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. We're talking about, this is the second week we're in this series called The Comparison Trap, and we're talking about this incessant habit that we have of comparing ourselves to the people around us. And the bottom line from last week's message, and really for this entire series, is this. There is no win in comparison. There's no win, because in looking to my left and looking to my right and in determining how well I'm doing based on something that you're doing or that everybody else is doing, there's no win in that because there's always going to be somebody else, as we said last week, who is richer or skinnier or smarter or taller or prettier or happier or hipper or talented-er, you know. I mean, there's all these er things that we, last week's message was living in the land of er, that we, we want all these things that end in er, we want bigger and every time we're around somebody else with something bigger, we, we feel like there's something wrong with us. And, and sometimes it can be motivating, but most of the time it's just depressing because no matter what you accomplish, there is always somebody with a bigger er. We also said last week there's always uh, someone with less than you. They're not quite as rich. They're not quite as skinny. They're not quite as talented, and then you kind of bow up thinking that you're something that you're probably not, and you get this sense of satisfaction because they don't have what you have or they can't do what you can do, and there's something in you that says, you know, I really shouldn't feel superior to other people, but I do. What's wrong with me? So as we said last week, there's just no win in comparison, and then there are a few type A folks in the room, and they're not content with being richer or taller or skinnier. They want to be the E-S-T. They want to be est. They want to be rich-est, skinny-est, tall-est. And again, just when you think you've gotten there and, and you think you've got everything figured out, you meet somebody with a bigger er and you start thinking, I can't keep up with these people. So there's absolutely no win in comparison. There's no finish line. There's no sense of satisfaction. And there's no peace. It takes your peace. It, it, it causes great angst in our spirits. So we're asking the question, what do we do about that? And is there a solution? <clears throat> now last week, I, I kind of threw some questions out at you, really ended on a, with a flurry of questions. We'll kind of touch on those in a minute. But before we finished up last week, I, I left you with, a, I had a question, and it was really the, the hinge point of this whole discussion on the comparison trap. The question was this, whom or what am I going to use as my reference point to tell me I'm okay? Who or what am I going to use as my reference point to tell me I'm okay? All of us, everyone, is looking to something or someone to tell us we're okay because it's in you to want to be okay. It's in me to want to be confident. It's in us to want to be desirable, to be lovable and acceptable. It is in us to want to look at people around us and to say, you know, we want them to look back at us and say, you're, you're doing it, you're all right, you're, you're worth looking up to, you're worth following, you're worth hiring, you're worth working for. We want all those things. We all want to know we're doing okay. And the question is, what or whom do you look to to see whether or not you're doing it right? In other words, what is your mirror? And we're all looking into some kind of mirror to tell us I'm doing okay. The question is, what is your mirror? For many of you, it's more than one thing. For some, it's just one person. 
And if you could just get them to look at you and say, you know what, you're all right. Just the way you are, you're all right. Then that would make your day for a while. But only temporarily, not for long, not forever. Maybe it's your brother-in-law who never has a nice thing to say to you. And every time you get into a conversation, you just don't feel as smart as him. Maybe it's your father-in-law that you just cannot measure up to no matter what, no matter how hard you try. You just can't seem to achieve his level of, ugh. Or maybe it's your dad that you just feel like, you know what, I'm never going to be that good. It might be somebody in your business or your industry, and in your mind, you're always competing against somebody else. And in the quest to get recognition, you kind of measure where you are by where they are. Maybe you look at your GPA. Maybe you look at where you plan to go to school. But all of us have one or two things that we kind of look at to tell us, hey, this, is, this makes me okay. What is that for you? And then there is this, and this happens to all of us. It's not a church thing or a religious thing. It's really a, it's a people thing. During our lives, as we try to figure out who do I look to, where am I going to look to see what's the mirror that tells me that, you know, how to measure myself, then we've got this. It's as if there is a whisper. And it's not audible, and I don't know that it's the devil, but it's not even a voice. It's, there's constantly this whisper in the back of our minds wondering, am I okay? I wonder if I measure up. I wonder if I make the grade. I wonder if they will always like me. I wonder if my kids will think I'm enough. I wonder. I wonder if I'm doing it all okay. And the great thing is this, Christianity offers an explanation as to where that whisper comes from. Christianity also offers an explanation not only to where the whisper comes from, but why we wonder about that kind of stuff. Christianity also offers a solution as to what or whom we should look to to find out if we're doing okay. So whether you're a Christian and have been for a long time or whether you're you know, new to this whole thing, maybe you're new to us, there's something I know about you even though I may not know you all that well. At some point, either in the future or currently, you are going to look around and you're going to see if you measure up to the people that are to your left and to your right. You're going to wonder, how am I doing? There's just this voice. There's this whisper. And you need to know that this approach to life that we call Christianity, that, that may well have been represented to you as you have grown up and as you've heard about it, it may have been represented to you in such a way that it just feels irrelevant that it's just about going to heaven at some point in the future. I want you to know that there's so much more to it than that, and we're going to talk about that so much more today. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Turn to Galatians. Galatians is in your New Testament. It's about halfway through. And I hear pages turning. I like it when pages get turned. That's a good thing. The letter to the Galatians, uh, it, there was a church in Galatia. Paul wrote this letter to them somewhere between 20 and 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul had unique insight into the significance of Christ's death and resurrection and the ramifications for the readers and the individuals in, in Galatia and all around the world and even for us today. Not just Jews, but people all over the world. And so he speaks to that significance, and in doing so, he addresses the issue of 
What or whom do I look to to discover if I'm okay? And he addresses it in such a way as to give us a huge clue about how to get out of the comparison trap. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the time had fully come, and another way of saying that is when God was ready. When God was ready, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. Now that's an important phrase. We need to talk about that phrase, under the law. You were born, and nobody told you this, but you were born under the law. And what that means is you were born, whether you know it or not, you were born accountable to the law of God, the law of the Old Testament, the law of the New Testament. Uh, but it's even deeper than that and better than that. You're born to the law of God. You're, you're kind of accountable to the law of God written on your heart. What do, what do I mean by that? There, there is something in you from time to time that says, I ought to, or I ought not to. People shouldn't, or people should always, or, you know, women shouldn't, or men shouldn't. There's just this universal sense of ought that manifests itself in you and in the people around you, and you may never have asked yourself where that came from, but Scripture teaches and life eventually works its way out in such a way that you begin to realize There is this sense of ought in me, or ought not. That's the law of God written on your heart. We bumped into this a little bit last week. Remember last week when I asked you that awful, horrible, terrible question to end church uh, last week? I asked you, have you ever secretly celebrated someone else's failure? You're on the phone, and they're telling you this bad stuff, and there's this something in you that goes, yes. Finally, they have a problem. And then you go, ooh, where'd that come from? I mean, that's not pretty. That that's, comes from an ugly place within me. Or maybe you've got a, a good friend, you know, somebody that you really, that you deeply love. But this friend of yours kind of has a perfect life. Their kids are perfect. They have the perfect car, the perfect wife. They have the 2.5 perfect kids. You know, their car never needs to be washed, and they have perfectly white teeth. You know what I'm talking about? The guy that just makes you sick. He just seems to have everything. And one day you get a phone call, and somebody's telling you that maybe they've got marriage trouble, or maybe, you know, something went haywire in their world. And you're on the phone, and you go, oh, I hate to hear that. But secretly you're going, yeah, they finally have a problem. It's just so good to know that their life isn't perfect. And you feel better about your future because of their failure. Something in you bubbled up that was ugly. And you thought, man, I hope nobody ever sees that part of me. You know what happened? Something that is true of you and true of me was mirrored in the law of God that is written on our hearts. And we don't like it. But it's in us. And Paul says, at the right time, God sent his son into the world to redeem us who were born under the law. Which means, being under the law, there is enough of the law of God written on your heart. You know there's something wrong with you. Now, we'll defend it, we'll cover it up, we'll put on makeup, we'll exercise, we're nice, we learn to be polite. But you know at the end of the day that something's not right with you, and I know something's not right with me, and we try to figure out what to do about it. And you know what we do about it? We look to the left and we look to the right, and we try to fix ourselves by comparing ourselves to the people that we see. 
And we think to ourselves, if I ever got this, if I could ever do that, if I could ever have this, if I could ever accomplish this, maybe enough people would look at me and say, you're so all right that I will begin to feel all right about me and I will fix whatever it is that's broken inside of me. That if I could ever accomplish this, if I could ever get their approval, if I could ever get that, if I could ever accomplish that, I would finally be able to say, I'm fine. I'm fine with me. Because you know there's something not right with you, and the only thing we do is we look around at the people that we think everything is all right with them. And we try to be like them, and we try to get what they have, and we try to go on vacation where they do, and we try to drive what they drive. And then we discover something. That eventually every adult finds out, some sooner than others, we discover that the people that we thought were all right, they're really not all right. We find that the people who have it all don't necessarily have it all. That the people who have accomplished more than we have, or that we will ever accomplish, that if you dig down deep underneath the surface and you read their books and you finally are able to see in their world, what you find out is that they've had a breakdown. Or somebody gets honest and tells the truth and it gets out. And we realize that we have the same problems they do. They struggle just like us. And even though they look better and even though they're more popular, we still have the same struggle. And we realize no matter what you have, no matter who you are, no matter how popular you are, no matter how cute you are, how famous, how rich, where your kids go to school, no matter how white your teeth are, (laughs) we all struggle. Doesn't matter. At the end of the day, every person wonders, I wonder if I'm okay. It means that if you ever had fill in the blank, whatever it is, you would still wonder. Whatever that thing is that you want, that you'd like to have so bad you can't stand it, we've all got them. We could all fill in that blank with something. You would still wonder, am I okay? It doesn't matter because we can find people who have the things that we want We can find people who've had the experiences that we want, and when you dig down beneath the surface, there is still this thing, even in them, I wonder if I'm okay. Because everybody is looking somewhere for affirmation. And the problem is not that you haven't achieved something. The problem isn't that you don't know the right person. The problem isn't any of that. The Apostle Paul goes to the root of the problem and and the reason that, that there's no acquisition that's really big enough There's no relationship that's strong enough to erase all that in our hearts. It's because this issue is this. You and I were born, when we were born, we were born into a broken relationship with the Creator. I don't know if you know that or not. But there was a break between Creator and creation. And because of that break between Creator and creation, there is an insecurity in us, in all of humanity, that goes to the very core of our soul. And that's why no matter what we have, where we've been, or who we know, there is a time in our life, or a stage in our life, or maybe throughout your whole life, you wonder. It is why the most successful people we know seem to be driven. It's why people who have accomplished way more than we will ever accomplish, we see them and they seem to just keep going. They seem to keep striving. It never seems to be enough. And we look at them and we say, If I had what they had, I would rest. 
Why does he work so hard? He's got everything. If I had what he had, I wouldn't work that hard. If I'd married her or if I'd married him, if I lived there, if I felt that way, if I could run that far, that fast at that age, if my kids would turn out that good, I think I would be fine. But it's because you don't understand the depth of the brokenness between you and God, your creator, there is an insecurity in us. And nothing and nobody and no acquisition and no accomplishment can ever fully restore or heal us. The Apostle Paul says this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, verse 5, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, this is huge. This means that through Christ, God did something for everybody who was born under the law. That is you and me, Jew, Gentile, religious person, non-religious person, that at the right time, God sent his son into the world to redeem us. Redeem. That's a, that's a transactional word. I want to tell you kind of what that means. It, it's, it's to buy back. It's to win something back. It is to regain what has been lost. It is to reattach something that has been disconnected. But when, at the time, when the time fully had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, those people who knew there's something not quite right with me. And no matter what I do, no matter what I win, no matter what I, I accomplish or who I meet, I can't ever seem to make it right. This isn't a really a very emotional word. It isn't a real inspirational word. And Paul says, no, no. This is simply a means to an end. And here's the end, that we might receive full rights as sons. If you were to have a, a New American Standard version of the Bible, I put that word adoption in there for a reason. Because if you have a New American Standard version, that's the word you see. That's the idea that Paul is trying to convey, even though they didn't really use that word. The idea is that we have been adopted. Paul said what God did when he sent Jesus into the world is way more than just forgive your sin. It's way more than you get to go to heaven when you die. It's way more than, you know, now things are right between you and God. It's bigger than that. What God did by sending his son into the world is he made it possible for you and me, and he chose this word intentionally, to receive the rights of sons to be adopted. It's really what he meant. The problem is the ancient people had no word for adoption. There wasn't a word for it. So the Apostle Paul dips into the Greek and Roman world that his readers were very familiar with, and Galatia especially was more a Roman culture than it was, it was not a Jewish culture. And when he said adoption, here's what came to mind, not babies, not babies. You would never think to adopt a baby because babies, many of them died. In fact, when a baby was born, they didn't name babies right away. You know, we have a baby, we pretty much know what we're going to name it. If we know the, the sex of the baby, we know we're going to name it usually before it comes out of the womb. They didn't do that. First of all, they didn't have all that great technology to know. But when the baby would come out, they would make sure that it was going to live because they didn't have any guarantee that the baby was going to live. And they would wait to name it to make sure it was going to be okay. And it was common 
for that to happen. It was also common for, it was, it was uncommon for babies to be adopted. It was very common for adults to be adopted. And you say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, why would, why would somebody, why would you adopt a, an adult? Well, here's the thing. You may have had somebody who had a, a, a gob of money, but they didn't have anybody to leave their money to. And, and so they might search for somebody that, that they wanted to kind of help out or take under their wing. They would find somebody, maybe a slave or a, a, a recently released slave or someone who didn't have a whole lot, and they might, you know, open up their mail one day and, and read, congratulations, you've been adopted. You don't have to sign anything. You don't have to agree to anything. You've been adopted. Adults were adopted all the time. So when Paul wrote this, his audience, you know, what they heard was this, that that God who knows you as an adult, who knows your sin and your failure, who knows where you never match up, God knows your past. God who knows everything about you sent his son into the world and he has made it possible for you with all your junk, with all your talent, with all your lack of talent, with all of your connections, with all of your lack of connections, God's made it possible for you to be adopted into his family and to become his child. It's not just you've been forgiven. It's not just, oh, you get to go to heaven. And it's not just, oh, now you're a Christian. It's not any of that. He said, no, it's far more relational than that. You have become a child of your creator. The creator-creation relationship that was broken in Christ, has been repaired. And then he says this, verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, this is remarkable. Jesus, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, uses this term, Abba. It's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. And it was so relational and it was so emotional and intimate In the Greek language, there is not an equivalent to this word. The closest that the Greek language had was the word father. But when the writers of the New Testament knew that Jesus had prayed, and when Paul was trying to capture the essence of what was prayed, when God God redeemed you and when he redeemed me, he realized, I can't just use the word father. That's not, that doesn't necessarily capture what I'm trying to get across. It's more than that. What's the word that captures this relationship between people who put their faith in Christ? And he says, we'll just go with the word that Jesus used in the garden. It's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. And it literally means, to get this, dad or daddy. Now, I've heard people start their prayers saying, daddy. I can't quite get there. Can you? That's just, I can't. I've never started a prayer with, daddy. You know, that just... That just hits me the wrong way. But if you do or if you have, it's accurate. There's nothing that says you can't start your prayers that way. Here's what you need to know. That's how God sees you. That's how God wants you to see him. He wants you to see him with the intimacy with which you have with your, with your earthly father. Those of you who have a great relationship. Now, this one of the problems I have sometimes with trying to lead someone to Jesus and tell them about their heavenly father is they had a horrible father. And, you know, they kind of start backing up and they say, Brett, if you're telling me, you know, you're going to give me another one of what I've had. So I have to be careful. What we're talking about is a relationship with our heavenly father that is perfect and he wants it to be so intimate. 
See, at this point, you are not part of some transactional thing. You're not just given a stamp like, you're forgiven, you know, move on to the next one. You're forgiven, move on to the next one. And it's not, you've been forgiven, now you're going to heaven. You know, next, forgiven, going to heaven. It's, it's far more than that. It's way more personal. He says, you've been adopted into the family of God. And now God is your dad, not just your father, your dad. What if that idea, what if that singular idea this morning moved from the screen to your head, to your heart? What do you think might happen inside you? Let me ask you a question. Let me cough before I do that. (coughs) Excuse me, I hate to do that in front of you, but I can't help it. Who do perfect parents compare their children to? Who do perfect parents compare their children to? I've seen parents that aren't perfect. (laughs) And they have a baby, and that baby is not cute. Okay, let's just say it how it is. That that baby just, you know, has what we might call an unfortunate face. You know, just. I've never seen an average-looking parent with an average-looking kid look down at that baby and say, oh, I wish she looked more like so-and-so. I wish she was cuter. You know, she's okay, but I wish... Not even an average parent, an average-looking parent looks at an ugly baby and says stuff like that. In fact, if they did, we would, we would worry about them, right? We would say, that is, they're not normal. There's something wrong with them. In fact, when you see parents comparing their kids to other parents, you don't think there's something wrong with the kid. You think there's something wrong with the parent, right? You know. You know it's not a good thing for kid, for parents to compare their kids to other kids. And you, you, you might, you know, at the soccer game or at the ball game or whatever, you might see that happen and you leave and you go, man, I feel so sorry for that kid. Because no matter what, they're never going to be able to measure up to that kid because he's faster or bigger or stronger or better soccer player or whatever. So I'll ask again, what, who do perfect parents compare their children to? And the answer is nobody. Perfect parents don't compare their children to anybody. Next question. Who does your heavenly father compare you to? As long as Christianity is categorical for you, as long as Christianity is, I'm, it's just that I'm forgiven, or it's just that you know I'm going to be a better person now, or as long as it's just a category of I'm going to go to heaven now, as long as it's about that, it's, it's really at arm's length. It's really not a very intimate thing. But what if God really sent his son into the world to redeem you? What if God really sent his son into the world to make you a son or a daughter? To become your dad. To be able to refer to you in the most intimate of terminology. What if God adopted you as an adult or a 15 or 16-year-old or whenever you gave your heart to Christ What if God views you in these terms? And if the Apostle Paul is right, what if Jesus is right? And the best way that he can describe his relationship with you is that you are his son or his daughter and that 
excuse me, he is your dad. So let me ask the question again. I want you to answer out loud because if this ever gets to your heart, it may change everything about you and around you. Who does your heavenly father compare you to? The answer is nobody. Nobody. Now, before I move on with anything else I have to say, you got to let that soak in. Okay? So, who does your heavenly Father compare you to? Nobody. Nobody. Let me ask another question. Whose estimation of you should you believe? Yours or his? Hasn't every parent had or wanted to have that conversation with your children where you say, if you could only see you the way I see you. You ever wanted to have that conversation with your kids? I remember, uh, if you're new to us, this may not mean anything to you because he's not here a lot and you might not know who I'm talking about. But if you've been here any length of time, you know my son Bennett. And he is the, he's the guitar player. A lot of times it's over here. He's the big boy with the big bushy beard. And um, he looks like a bear, pretty much, what he looks like. He just looks like a big huggable bear. And he loves to play his guitar and he loves to worship. And, and we all love him. But I remember when he was deciding on college. We were talking about college and the ones he, you know, he, when he came to me and said, I said, what do you want to do with your life? You know, his answer was basically the same answer that your kid would, it would sound like that your kid coming to you saying, I want to be a professional baseball player, okay? That's the response that you have when he tells me what he wants to do because what he wants to do is he wants to travel the, the world, if he could, and play his guitar. He wants to be in a band and travel and play his guitar. I, I mean, I guess he wants to be a rock star. All right, that's what he wants to do. So, and he's pretty good. He's not bad. He's pretty good. He's got a lot of learning to do. And I told him, I said, look, you've accomplished so much. You've taught yourself a lot. My job as a dad, as I view my job for you, my job as a parent, in my estimation, is to give you wings. My job as best I can is to to do all I can to, to... Enable your dreams to come true in as much as it's possible for me to do that. And so we were having this conversation about, you know, what school's going to be like and how expensive it's going to be and how broke I'm going to be at the end of it. You know, it's just going to be awful. And I'm like, buddy, you've got to knuckle down. I mean, you've got to take this seriously. This is, I'm willing to make a, a, a huge investment in you and in your future to get you to the place that you want to go to. But you got to work with me on this. You, this can't be a halfway thing. we both got to be full on in this together. And that's when he stopped and he looked me in the eye and he said, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this. He said, Dad, sometimes I think you believe in me more than I believe in myself. I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't that what a dad does? Doesn't a dad believe in his kids more than anybody else? So what is it like for you when God looks at you and says, stop comparing. Stop trying to be that. Stop trying to look like her. Stop trying to have his money. What difference would it make if our kids heard us look at them and say, baby, quit Quit looking over here to the left and to the right. I love you. I believe in you. You don't have to be anything special for me to love you. I love you just the way you are. 
whose estimation of you should you believe when it comes to you? Yours or God's? Yours or the people around you who don't know you and don't know God? The people on TV that, don't even, that, that you don't even know, that if you could know their world and know their heart and know their mind and realize they don't have it all together, they look like they have it all together, they look happy, they got boats and planes and cars and vacation and fancy places, but they never really, when you read about them, they don't really seem all that happy. Whose estimation should you embrace, yours or your heavenly father's? You see, as long as you look to the left and to the right, there will never be any peace because you will never catch up to the people that you're looking at. You're never going to have what they have because as you're working, they're working, and they're getting more while you're getting more. And you get older, and you fall behind. But what if you and I began, and, and what if every day I said, and believe me when I tell you this, this is a struggle for me. I don't know how many times I've caught myself saying this. And this is my thing. This might not be your thing, but my thing is, I wish I was as smart as he is. I wish I knew what he knew. I wish I had that level of intelligence or that level of talent. And I would give anything to have what he's got. Maybe for you it's different. Maybe for you it's, I wish I was as cute as she is or as thin as she is. I wish I had what he had. Or I wish I went to vacation where he does. If only, what if we stopped ourselves and said, no, 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 there's no win in comparison. Yeah, I might be inspired, I might even be motivated, but I can't let my mind go to comparison because there's no win in it. God, I want to take my cue from you. I want, you to, I want to see me the way you see me. I think God would say this, well, I want you to know that you are fine because you are mine. I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not gonna leave you where you are. We've got some work to do. You're a child. We've got some growing up to do. You've got some developing and some changing to do. But you're fine because you're mine. God says, look to me for your affirmation. Look to me for your approval. And I'm gonna do things through you and in you that you wouldn't believe. There's so much potential in you that the Father sees. And God has a plan and a will for your life, and you wake up every morning, and all you gotta know is this, God, I'm in, the, I'm in your will this morning. That's really all you gotta know. When you go to bed at night and you say, God, I'm in your will to the best of my ability, and I may not jump as high as her, I may not be as cute as her, I may not have as much money as him, but to the best of my ability, I'm in your will, and I want what Jesus wanted. I want to do the will of my dad. Now, you do in me all that you want to do in me and accomplish through me what you want to, but I will not fall into the habit of comparing myself to everybody else because I think I'm fine because I belong to you. Do you have any idea how much peace would come with that? God has a plan for you. He is the perfect father, and he does not compare you to anybody else. He's fine with you. He's not done with you. He's going to change you. He's going to mold you. He's going to make you into something better. But you're fine. Listen, 
Maximum accomplishment for you is going to be found in God's will for you. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Maximum accomplishment for you is going to be found in God's will for you. That's why it's foolish to look to the left or the right because God doesn't look to the left or the right. God says, I'm your dad. If you want approval, look to me for approval. See, there's no win in comparison. What we've got to do is we've got to take our cue about each other, about us. We Take your cue about you from the one who made you, who loves you, and who redeemed you. The wisest man who ever lived wrote something that we looked at last week. I want to read it to you again. It's Proverbs 14. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Now that's a in Hebrew, that's called a, a couplet. It means that you interpret one by the other. The contrast to every envy rots the bones is peace, which means that the kind of peace he's talking about is the peace that you will never have as long as you are in the place of envy. If you're in the place of envy, you will not know peace. We all know the extraordinary power of an earthly father's approval. Can you imagine the power of your heavenly father's approval? if you would stop comparing yourself to everybody else and started to look to him for approval? Take inspiration from their accomplishments, sure. Take courage from the things they're able to do. Cheer them on. But before you grab the handles and push the buttons that compare what they have to what you have, to what you've done, to what they've done, to what their accomplishments are based on what your accomplishments are, to where they vacation and where you vacation, what their kids are doing and what your kids are doing. That's when you stop and say, I'm going to take my cue from the one who loves me, who sent his son to die for me, who redeemed me, who fixes what is broken in me, and who fixed the relationship between the creation and the creator. I'm going to take my cue from the one who loves me and created me and redeemed me because there is no win in comparison. And my greatest potential is not found outside the will of God. My greatest potential is found inside the will of God. And it is there that I will accomplish all I am to accomplish and do all I'm supposed to do. So why would I look to my left and to my right? God, I want your will for my life. I'm far more interested in what you think of me than what anybody else thinks about me. I want to take my cue from you. And do you know what you will find? You'll find that you have been, the thing that you've been looking for your whole life, that Whatever it is that you've been trying to outrun or whoever it is you've been trying to outweight loss or outearn or outsell or out everybody else, you'll find what can only be found in God's will. Peace. You'll find peace. Peace when you do well and peace when you fail. Peace when you win, peace when you lose. Peace when you get on the scale and the scale says, way to go. And peace when you get on the scale and it says you ate way too much. You'll find peace. You will never find peace anywhere but in the eyes of God who has invited you to refer to him as daddy. Because his estimation of you is better than anyone else's estimation combined. Everybody else that you would look to, his estimation is better. Envy rots the bones, peace gives life, and peace is found in the eyes of God. We're about to sing a song. I love this song. It's really pretty. 
I want want you to kind of focus in as we sing this song coming up on three lines in the song. The riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares with your embrace. Light of the world forever reign. And when we sing that in a minute, I just, I hope that this idea of God the Father, your daddy, comes to rest on you. And you can finally just kind of let go of this idea that I got to check out what's going on on either side of me. That, that what God thinks about me matters. And he doesn't compare me to anybody else. He's perfect. And he says, I'm fine. He would say to me, I'm, you're fine because you're mine. If you've never given your life to Christ, I don't know how that's been represented to you. I don't know what you think being a Christian is about. But here's what it's about in a nutshell. It's about the fact that you need a Savior You need forgiveness. None of us are perfect. We're all broken. That God sent Jesus into the world to redeem us, die for us, save us, and reconnect us to God. And that in all of that, we have a heavenly Father. Not some cosmic killjoy that wants to tell us what to do and what not to do. Not some God that's waiting to squash us like a grape the minute we step out of line. Not some God who wants to get us. If God wanted to get us, he'd have done God us. right? What you have is a father, and you can stop striving, and you can know peace, and you can just rest, and that'll be enough. If that's never happened for you, if you've never given your life to Christ, you could do that today. We'd love to have you do that. We're going to pray, then we'll stand and sing, and if you've never given your heart to Jesus, I would invite you to come. Let's pray together. Father, what is it in us that makes us want to compare? We never feel like we're good enough, and yet you sent Jesus to die for us. In your mind, we're good enough. You don't compare us to anybody else. The only standard that is set for us is your standard. It's one that you said we couldn't meet, we can't be perfect, and you said that's okay, I've got that covered too. I've got Jesus, and he is perfect. So, Father, this morning, we we collectively come into this room. There's not a one of us who have this figured out. We've all looked into the mirror and compared ourselves to somebody that we know or something that we want or some accomplishment that we wish we could attach to our name. We're all insecure, and we all do this silly thing of comparing. Father, this morning, we find peace in this. You're perfect. You're our dad. And you don't compare us to anybody. Father, for that we're grateful. And because of that, we are empowered now to live the life that you call us to live. A life in your will to do the things you want us to do and nobody else. And it's all because of Jesus. It's because of his precious name. So Father, if there's somebody in here this morning who's never given their life to Christ and they've thought it's about a bunch of stuff that it's just not about, I pray that you would help them to see. It's about finally being forgiven and knowing true peace and being loved by God. Thank you for that, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.